What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Brandon, back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. But first, before we get started, a little disclaimer. I am not a financial advisor, and the guest is not giving financial advice. So everything you hear on this podcast is strictly opinion and should not be taken as financial advice. We disclose if we have any holdings discussed in this podcast and you should not be following us as financial advisors. You should discuss this with professionals before you get involved or invested. And as always, it's not financial advice. So please, please, please take this strictly as our opinions and for entertainment purposes only. Now let's get into the show. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I have the great Wolf Financial in the waiting room down below. Wolf uh, hosts amazing Twitter spaces every single day on Twitter, I guess now X, um, all day long. So if you're looking for financial topics, he's got the breadth of them, and he does a great job moderating, bringing outstanding guests. But before we get started, big shout out to Idaho Armored Vaults, Bob Coleman and his team at goldsilvervault.com is where you can find them. They are giving you the lowest premiums of any single uh, precious metals dealer. They offer a wide range of precious metals. They have extensive amounts of liquidity from a trusted partner. So if you are looking to get into the precious metals, check out Idaho Armors Vaults. Tell them Green Candle sent you. Go to goldsilvervault.com and uh, go ahead and get started. See if it's a good fit for you. All right, enough from me. Let's get Wolf on up here. Wolf, man, how you doing today? Living the dream. Thanks for having me on. Of course, man, of course. So for those who don't know uh, much about you or your background, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, yeah, kind of how you got to start Wolf Financial? Yeah, sure thing. And like you mentioned, right now, there's a big focus on Twitter spaces and that's just a part of the business. There's a few aspects to it, but it all kind of goes back to kind of the COVID days. Uh, I was working at a private equity firm, actually, right when COVID hit. We were targeting distressed companies and essentially flipping them, going in, purchasing, redoing management, and then selling them, ideally. With that being said, the firm was extremely unprepared for a pandemic. And when it did hit, it really forced them to completely rethink a bunch of things. And at that time, I basically was just going through PPE documents, just trying to get loans to make these companies survive. And after doing that for about a month, uh, I got pretty tired of it, realized that there was no end in sight to this pandemic, could go on for years, right? How long do we know? And I got a call from a couple of buddies who wanted me to come into the startup world with them. Their idea was, hey, you know, there's so many people that are getting into investing. And this was before the big 2020 run. This is like just at the beginning of it, like April, March of 2020. And they hit me up and they say, hey, we want you to come in. But what was curious to me was I was so used to doing a finance role at any venture that I'd been at, but they wanted me to come in and do operations. And I was like, I like that. I like operations. I do like overseeing things. So I started to help out this startup and basically build it up. And that startup was called Wolf Financial. And after several months, we built out actually a social finance app, a place where people could come and share their portfolios and stuff like that. It's a little bit less common than it is now. There's a lot of them. But we didn't have that many users. So the idea was, how are we going to get users? We're going to go to social media where they already are. I went to Twitter. I made the Wolf Financial Twitter account. I started engaging about six months later after I've done a good amount of marketing. Twitter spaces come out. And just a light goes off in my brain after I hear about two Twitter spaces at like 1 a.m. in the morning where people are just talking about nonsense. And I just realized that that is such a powerful medium. 
I went ahead and I cold DM'd and emailed every single person who worked at Twitter Spaces with private messages like, oh, you're the Android tech lead. That's, you know, super cool. I, I love that stuff. I would like to, you know, be on Twitter Spaces. I got access to it. And that's kind of the story. Uh, accounts started surging. And the big point is the startup went out to raise capital. The investors gave us a very healthy dose of realism, which is you're building in a very crowded space. There's a lot of people building a social finance platform. You need to do something different. They recommended that the startup do a complete pivot, go B2B, build a investing API, something around that, that they could sell off. The original co-founders decided to do that. They had a conversation with me. I said, I love this brand that we're building out. And I bought with my equity, the entire Wolf Financial brand off the company that I was building it for, spun that out as my own, went full time. And that was 17 months ago. And now I host or 18 months ago, I guess now. Uh, now I host uh, full-time Twitter spaces and I built a couple other companies off the back of it. Wow, that's amazing. And that, that's, a, that's great stuff. So, you know, you, you said that there's a couple different arms. I don't know, are you, I don't know if you're willing to go into like all the different arms of Wolf Financial, but I'd love to hear, hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, well, mainly, so I, I do put a lot of attention towards the show because again, that's 30 to 40 hours of my week is gonna be live on the show. But within the show, there's different aspects. There is our daily power hours. There's our morning trading sessions. But I also host crypto shows, right? You were mentioning Bitcoin. I also host real estate shows. I hosted a show about investing in gold uh, this past week. I do a ton of different types. I'm not just hosting pure trading, pure investing, pure anything. It's really a mix. And the common factor is people who want to make money come to my spaces because they know that I'm going to bring opportunities in front of them and deep dive into them and provide due diligence and research live that they can listen to. And that's what attracts people. Separate from that, you know, one of the things I realized as I grew larger and larger on Twitter was that there's a lot of accounts that grow really fast, but they're not doing anything with it. Most of them have day jobs, right? It's not their full-time focus. They don't have to monetize, so they don't. And they're sitting there on 50, 100, 2 million followers, who knows, right? And they're not making anything off of it. And I realized that, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hustler. I like getting in meetings. I do a ton of meetings throughout the week. My weekends usually are full of meetings because I want spaces so much during the day, during the week. So I have to do my meetings at night and weekends. And I'm always pitching. And I'm pitching everybody on this, this, and that. And I realized there's all these people who have audiences, but they're introverts. They have a job. They don't want to go out and pitch or they don't know how to. They don't know how to find a company. And then there's all these companies that want to work with all of them, but they won't answer their DMs because they don't know who the company is. And so I found myself working as middleman. And so I basically was able to build a really a creator agency on top of what I already had created. And now I have about 15 different people that I work with there. And I am constantly pitching them to companies, constantly doing that. Of course, middlemaning, um, bringing all the money through Wolf, taking my percentages, overseeing talent, stuff like that. But that's kind of another company that I've been able to build out as well. And then always, you know, always looking for new ventures, always tapping into different things. We're building on LinkedIn now. Um, so I help people kind of build on LinkedIn, figure out how to crack that code. I just think that social media, people think it's very random, but there's a clear algo and a clear formula. And if you understand it and how to hammer it, you can really do something there. Yeah, and I think that's outstanding. And there's, you know, the, the mass development of like financial Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like you were kind of at, you know, almost at the forefront of it, you know, when Twitter spaces, I believe started around like November 2020-ish time, maybe September, like around late 2020, like, you know, in, in the middle of the pandemic, so to speak. So, you know, uh, before we get into like, you know, the, the current state of things, like, how do you think that that has developed over time, right? Because I mean, we're almost three years sort of into 
the social audio kind of space. So, you know, how has that developed for you and how have things changed over time? Well, today's a big day. Today, they actually started to roll out the ability to speak on Twitter spaces from desktop, which is going to completely, cha completely change the game. There's so many people, especially the older generation, who do not use Twitter as an app on their phone. They're logged into it as a desktop. I have kind of broken a lot of people's cherries when it comes to being on a Twitter space. And many of them never have even downloaded the Twitter app before in their lives. They just made an account online, right? And that's how they went about it. So it's a really interesting thing that they're making it so much more accessible now. And I'm excited to see if that brings an onpouring of new speakers that we wouldn't have heard from before. So big thing for that. I was actually contracted by Twitter for a several month period back in kind of December of 2021, I want to say, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Maybe it was 2020. Wow, gosh. Uh, no, it had to be 2021. Um, kind of like end of 2021, I got contracted by Twitter. Uh, they brought me in on a Spaces Spark program, basically to help them build out the product. Uh, they were paying me to host Spaces. I was doing review sessions. I literally was there as we built out in Figma some of the features that are in the app nowadays. And so I've been able to see it grow. And to be honest, they told me that this feature would be in there like a year and a half ago. So it's really cool to actually see this feature coming to fruition and being in there. But aside from that, they've massively grown, right? At first, very few people could do spaces. Then you had to have 600 followers. Now anyone can host a space and many people do. Uh, I don't know exact numbers right now, but I know that there are millions and millions and millions of people that are tuning into them. There's spaces that get 10,000 plus people. There's presidential candidates getting interviewed on them. Uh, it's a variety of pieces. So yeah, it's grown with the platform. They've completely destroyed all really other social audio. I mean, you have Clubhouse, which I don't think people use. Um, you have Public, which you know I don't know if people are drawn into that. I think that they're hitting their own user base, which is good, right? Their user base is going to use it. Um, but Twitter or X, X Spaces is really the one that I think people are starting to think of when they hear social audio. And as they bring more tools to it, whether it was the ability to pin you know, tweets to the top or the ability to uh, set up reminders, links and all this type of stuff, it's just going to get better as a product, in my opinion. So we're putting in the hours. We're giving them plenty of data. Hopefully they're using it and giving us back some new uh, features. Yeah, for sure. And it definitely seems like it's improved, right? I mean, I think like at the beginning, I, I was having spaces crash a, a decent amount, right? I mean, it, it all kind of comes with it, though, you know, but uh, especially the bigger ones, right? I mean, it, but it just kind of comes with like the developing new technology. But I want to dive into markets a little bit. So, you know, I'll leave it broad. We've had, you know, COVID, you know, crash, kind of the run up. Um, now we're kind of floating in limbo, it seems. So where do you think we're at? And uh, yeah, I guess uh, forward looking, where do you kind of think we're going? I think ultimately we're going for more upside, but we were having a conversation about this actually on Spaces today, funny enough. Myself and I think many other long-term investors would not mind a 10 to 15% pullback, right? That would be fantastic, in fact, because this market has been on an absolute tear. Now, don't mind me looking down, just looking at some charts as I talk about this. But when you look at something like SPY, right, that's the classic. This is up at this point uh, since the lows back in. Well, I'm not even going to go back to January 1st, just the lows of March. This is currently up 17, 18 percent. Most recently, it was up 20 percent right before the last few days. That's a giant move in just a few months. Normally, the S&P 500 is averaging 10, 11 percent a year. Right. And so to say that we're up 20 percent in like four months, um, that's a bit of a stretch. So while I like this market higher for longer, and that's being reflected, by the way, in individual stock earnings, which we saw many of which the last two weeks where there were beats, 
upgrades, guidance, right? The, especially the larger stocks looking great. You have areas like oil, gold still looking pretty good. Um, so I still do look towards higher for longer. Personally, I think that people are becoming less worried about things like CPI. They're getting a little bit more used to the Fed. They're just acknowledging where we're at with the rates. The one thing that you do have to pay attention to is those margins that are going to be compressing as the rates keep going up. At this point, though, unless we break through like six and a half percent on these interest rates or 6.25 percent, I'm still of the mindset that we could have higher for longer. But we're having a little bit of a pullback here, and I'll actually give you my technical analysis two cents while we're on here. So I actually said this yesterday. This was a pullback on SPY to the 21-day moving average with, I'm going to do it without after-hours data on for now, but essentially that was sitting at about 450.59. That's a very common spot to pull back. You can see we basically rode that 21-day up all the way from back in May. At this point, we've now retraced to it. And then I was stating, I said, if we have another day where we do end up going below it and we have a close below it, I'm going to look for a move down to my next trend line. And I'm going pretty simple with this stuff. My trend line is straightforward. I'm going to, from the lows of March straight through the lows of May. And that's where I'm drawing it to, right? And I'm looking for a retrace down to that trend line. This is pure technicals right here that I'm looking at. And that's going to be closer to the 440.5 or 441 area right there. So right now, since we did get that close, I'm waiting patiently with the market. There's no need to rush things. It could happen in a matter of days. It could take two to three weeks. I want us to come back down to that point. And from that point, that's where I would take potentially a tester, an entry into the market, right? Let's say if I'm just adding to a portfolio or something like that. Um, but that's my thoughts right now is higher for longer. At the same time, would not mind this 10 to 15% pullback, but I don't think we're, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of bears kind of getting killed for a while here. Maybe they're celebrating the last few days. I don't think that they're going to be super, super happy over the next few months. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because, you know, it definitely seems like the Bears maybe might be the loudest on these on the Twitter spaces because they've been doubting Powell for everything that he said, you know, the higher for longer, all that things. I kind of think that he's going to reverse course. Now, you know, I, I don't know how much weight you take into like, you know, what the Fed says or some of these speakers that come out, but uh, it seems like the market reacts one way or the other kind of based on his tone or what. Do you kind of, I guess, take weight into you know, I guess what he says just because the market reacts to it, or do you kind of take what he says and, you know, believes, believe what he says, even though the market seems kind of, I, I guess, delusional in a sense. We have to put some credence into what the Fed is saying. And that's because you can look in the past and see that it affects things, right? When we started quantitative tightening, there was a real fear that we were sharing on Twitter spaces of, we haven't been in quantitative tightening for a while. We've been sitting at 0% interest rates. This is a phenomenon, right? Keep an eye out for this market. And what did it proceed to do? I mean, most growth stocks dropped like 80%, right? So you have to pay attention to the Fed when they're saying that they're going to come out with certain pieces like that. At this point right now, though, I think Jerome Powell has done a masterful job of not kind of showing his cards too much, right? Because that's what I think worries people is not what's happening at this meeting, not necessarily what's going to happen at the next meeting, but when they kind of feel like they have an idea of what's going to happen over the coming year, they start freaking out, right? They start saying, this is, oh, the Fed's going to do this, this, and this. Rates are going to go to this level. Jerome Powell is just reeling people in at these meetings, making it fully data dependent, saying there is no decision made for the next three months, let alone the next six or 12 months. We are instantly, you know, we are simply going to 
recognize that there's data sets coming out. We're going to look at jobs. We're going to look at unemployment. We're going to look at the economy and we're going to make decisions based off that. I think that's what he needs to continue to do. And as long as he does that, we're going to get muted moves like you saw this last time. So what do you think? But what do you think about some of the data, right? I mean, to, to me personally, you know, the jobs report was, was kind of interesting, right? I mean, it absolutely crushed uh, estimates and it came out, I believe, either yesterday or the day before. But then, you you know, you hear reports of a bunch of, you know, companies from like our ADP reporting that a bunch of job cuts, cuts are happening. So, you know, to, to me, it seems like it's a lot of like survey data and like the data that the Fed is kind of using is almost like, I, I don't want to say like out of date or what, but it seems like it's very like slow and not current in a sense, right? Because it's, you know, mostly survey based. So um, do, do you think that because of that, like maybe that the Fed will be, I guess, maybe reacting a little late when it comes to, you know, maybe something like a pivot, pause, turnaround, whatever you want to say? Yeah, that's uh, the chicken or egg question, right? It's like, is the, is it the data lagging? Is that the data we should be paying attention to? We've kind of been acting off of it for so long now that it's like, is that what should we should be acting off of? I'm not a macro expert in those areas, so I don't pretend to be. It sounds like you have a really good understanding of the job report, so I may take more of your info on it. But yes, uh, there's a big discussion around the Fed acting off lagging data. You mentioned it for jobs. People mentioned it for CPI and a bunch of other pieces. The main thing, though, that I have to look at is the consistency of them staying with similar data sets over time the way that they've interacted with them over time. And if they were to go and make a big change, and we've seen them make changes uh, in the past with the way that they were calculating actually CPI. What was that, like six months ago? They made a change to the way that they're doing that. So maybe they'll continue to adjust, but I don't want them to just make a giant shift and be like, okay, cool. We're now going over to this new data set. I would rather the Fed have some consistency with the data that they're looking at. Um, even if that means that there is potentially somewhat of it being delayed, I think that they need to get themselves up to speed, but I don't want them to just make a giant chop on the data sets that they've been looking at, go over to a whole new side. I would rather they do that process slowly. Yeah. And, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. But, um, you know, it, it definitely seems like uh, I, I don't know if it's because of the development of X, Twitter, you know, that the kind of like sharing of information with social media. But it seems like everybody's kind of hanging on the words of Jerome Powell and, you know, what they're saying about the economy a little bit more now. Are, are you noticing that maybe it's because of what you do? But I mean, you were in the industry prior. So I'm curious, like, were, was there as much stress on, you know, the you know FOMC meetings, that kind of thing, uh, prior to, I guess, uh, you know, the development of, of Twitter spaces and, and, you know, the COVID pandemic? There, there was, but it wasn't by retail triggers, right? This is more of a phenomenon of retail paying attention. I think we all know that, you know, I, I, I did work at Goldman Sachs at one point as well. I was in their private wealth division, so it wasn't banking or trading necessarily. It's a little bit different, but I was able to see from the inside what people were paying attention to. And institutions and big banks were always paying attention to these meetings, right? They were always watching them. And ultimately, they're still the ones that are actually moving the markets. Retail, I feel like, is kind of just become more of an observer. And we're almost like, we're like in a if I was to put this in an interesting way, I kind of liken it to sports betting a little bit where the actual people that make and move markets are people that are doing this for like seriousness, right? Like these are their jobs. This is what they live for. And then for retail, it's entertainment, right? It's like, that is what it is for us. And I feel very similar with FMC where these big banks were always paying attention. They were always the ones moving the markets and retail just kind of caught on and made it like a form of entertainment almost uh, because we have to understand like, 
you know, one day doesn't make a market, right? One meeting's not going to make a market. And I think that most long-term investors do comprehend that and don't buy or sell their portfolio based on what happens on an FOMC day. But they started to come in and say, hey, this is kind of like, you know, have you put $10 down on a basketball game? Suddenly becomes the most interesting game in the world, right? And same thing with FOMC. I think people were like, all these big players are paying attention. Maybe I should get in on some of the action, but it's much more from an entertainment perspective than an actual market moving perspective. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, I think, you know, it, it gets the clicks, right? I mean, people kind of tune it's in. They say, yeah, they like to go out. And, and I mean, I feel like kind of like the same way about everything that, you know, Jim Cramer says now. It's like kind of the the meme to say like, all right, now we're back every time he says something, right? I mean, it, it's just kind of the way things go is like whenever uh, some politician or pal says something, it's, you know, you have to have an opinion on it in some way, shape or form. Um, but do you think that there's, I, I guess, more of a, a a stress on not only just, you know, Powell and like the FOMC, but, you know, even the tiniest market moves when it comes to retail because of, you know, the development of, you know, financial Twitter, like, you know, what Wall Street Bets did with Reddit and GameStop, like all that kind of stuff, just kind of overall encompassing just the spread of information pretty quickly it seems like everybody's got an opinion on a, on a stock, whether, it, you know, Tesla is a, a good, great example, right? You have to have either one side of the coin, right? You have to be an extreme bull or extreme bear. There's really, you know, if you're just in the middle, people yell at you, it seems like. So, um, you know, do you think that that's kind of because of the development of, of like social media and the sharing of ideas in a sense? Yeah, it is. And ultimately, that largely, in my opinion, is because arguments, divisiveness, that's what drives clicks. It drives views, right? That's how you get people to interact with you on social media. The biggest spaces on social media are typically like eight people up there just yelling at each other about a hot topic. Like they're, they're not, you know, organized panels moving around talking about the daily market. That's not really what is going to get you a 10,000 person space. Uh, now, it's not my style. It's not really how I like to do spaces. I don't really like the yelling, the back and forth, the debates, the divisiveness. Occasionally I do a bull bear space and some pieces like that. It's just not really what I like to lean into. Um, but I know that it is what draws audiences. And yes, that's why people do it. There's a lot of people who are out there and you use Tesla as an example. There's a lot of people who are Tesla bulls who before social media would just go on living their life, right? Being Tesla bulls, like cool. Would they ever talk to anyone about Tesla? Maybe like once a year, maybe like twice a year, like check out this investment I've got, you know, it's up a bunch since I bought it. Cool, you know, the Tesla bears, like go to some of their bios on Twitter. The, the bios literally say like, mostly here to make Tesla fans cry. Mostly here, like, like that is just, you know, what they put in their bio. So yeah, very much agree with you. It is a social media phenomenon. That's why people are shouting the loudest from the rooftops. And do you know what? It's only going to escalate because now X is going to pay people for getting all those impressions. So the only thing that's going to happen is people are just going to get more divisive. Uh, they're going to put more content out and they're going to do their best to get engagement on it. Yeah, 100 percent. And, uh, you know, you've been kind of doing the, the Twitter spaces and are been on Twitter, it seems like, you know, since the Elon transition. Um, so uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Uh, how do you feel like, you know, he's kind of, you know, revolutionizing the platform, so to speak? I mean, you know, it, it, we saw a report we we found, uh, you told me earlier today that it's it's debunked, but it seemed like he was 
going to almost build his own like social media trading platform on there. It seems like he's kind of like leaned into almost like the financial aspect of Twitter, like the FinTwit kind of stuff has has kind of taken uh, you know a little bit of his eye, and he's you know gone on spaces for you know Tesla earnings, like all that kind of stuff. So you know, in a sense, like you know, doing what you do on Twitter and or I guess X now, uh, like how do you think that he's done and uh, you know, what are you like, I guess, looking forward to like in the future as this uh, kind of develops? Yeah. So first things first, uh, Elon does follow me. So if you're watching this, keep killing it, big guy. Good things all the way. Outside of that, it's been a really interesting transition. I think that you have to like take a step back and look at some of the comments that he's made. The main comment being that X is not supposed to be what Twitter was, right? It is an everything app. That is the goal behind it. And that the whole entire purchase of Twitter was to accelerate the development of X by three to five years. He came out, said that publicly. So there's always been a vision here. Now, what is X supposed to be? My best guess is something that is a non-communist version of WeChat. Uh, WeChat, for those who are unfamiliar, is basically an everything app in China. You download one app and you have social media, payment systems, you know, maps, transportation, whatever it is. It's all built into it. You also, if you're in China, get a credit score that the government monitors and you can't do certain things if it goes too low. So hopefully we don't have that part of it. But yes, they're going to have to have some type of financial system built in. They've already stated that they are going to add tipping for creators, which is going to be really fun when that comes to Twitter spaces. I'm actually pretty excited for that. See if it adds much to the bottom line. In addition to that, they are going to add uh, more payment services, potentially for DMs, for other areas, they already have subscriptions, monetization. So yes, finances are going to be worked in thoroughly. And maybe one day there will be some type of trading or something along those lines. I think that that's going to be one of the latter portions just because of the regulation and just the amount of headache that it takes to actually build a brokerage, get it approved. And then the other piece that you have to remember is most of the brokerages that we know are only viable in certain locations, right? And the idea with X is, hey, we're going to be worldwide. We're not just building for the US. And so they have to figure that out too as, as they build, right? How do we scale this to be worldwide? Because US, you're getting probably what? People that are above 18, I don't know, 100, 150 million. That's not enough users, right? They want a billion users. That's not going to come from the US. So they have to think globally and build globally. So I'll put it at that, but I can dig deeper if there are certain items that you want to touch on. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, I think that's a, a great breakdown there. Yeah, I mean, like the, the global aspect of it uh, is is really interesting because, I mean, I feel like I every time I interact on Twitter spaces, I'm talking with somebody either, you know, across the globe or, you know, another country or even just even across the United States, which, you know, is, is revolutionary in itself, right? I mean, you probably get panels where you get experts from, you know, in New York, Miami, uh, Europe, and and kind of all over the place. Um, so, you know, it, in your experience, um, I'll leave you with one last question. What has been kind of the, the I guess, the coolest experience that you've had uh, through Twitter Spaces that you know just kind of like resonated with you, and it, it's sort of like a reason that you, you you know you keep doing it every single day. Great question. Why do I keep doing Twitter Spaces every single day? Is largely because it is, to be honest, incredibly lucrative. <laughs> So I think people don't understand that it's a job, right? It is something that I come to work and I do every day and I also do enjoy it. But number two is the people that you can meet through it. I mean, oh my gosh, right? Like you're, you're, you're pointing it out. Uh, I've had Elon on spaces. I've had Gary Black. I've had Bill Ackman for conversations. I've had Jason Kalkanakis, uh, you know, Ross Gerber, Grant Cardone, like all these people have come on spaces, have full conversations, interacted with me. I mean, 
these have each stood out. And beyond that, you know, we've had spaces where there were 10,000 people on there, more than that, uh, major investors. It allows me access to pick people's brains who are so much smarter, so much more experienced than me. Experience is irreplaceable, right? And the only thing that you, you, you can't, you can't speed up experience, unfortunately. It's not like, you know, you can just run faster necessarily. You kind of have to take it one step at a time, but you can piggyback off of other people's experiences by absolutely just grilling them about them, finding out what they did wrong, finding out what they did right, and then replicating that for your experience. So a couple that stood out to me, I will say my first Twitter spaces, like the first week or two were so rewarding because, you know, and I got an advantage because most people didn't have access to open Twitter spaces, but like my first Twitter spaces had like 300 people in there listening. It was never, I never went through the stage of like five, 10, 20 people. It was like the first ones at 300. They're like, whoa, right? Like that's an auditorium of people. You know, like my, my graduating class in high school was like 75 kids. Like this was like three times larger than that. You know, we're like coming, it's like my first Twitter space and nobody even knew who I was. My first Twitter space I hosted when I had less than a thousand followers and there were 300 people in there. I'm like, that's like a lot of people. So that was extremely rewarding when that did happen. Outside of that, I think that, you know, just seeing how people react, like we were talking about earlier with FOMC events, CPI days, earnings, just major things happening and how sometimes it's like, hey, Bitcoin just dropped 10%. Let's open a space and just the immediate flood of people and how we're the quickest. The one thing I liken it to is I'm a huge podcast person. Love listening to podcasts. Um, I work out two podcasts. I listen to podcasts. I, I don't really listen. Music is a social thing for me. I listen to it with other people. And I have learned a ton from these podcasts of how to talk, how to engage, all those things. But I feel like I can never get enough. The podcast comes out three times a week and I finish it. I'm like, where's the next? And once I realized that, I was like, people must love these Twitter spaces. Like, no wonder, you know, you're getting it every day, consistent. You could tune in whenever you want. Imagine, you know, these people that I like love listening to just, just keep going. And I was like, that's the magic to it. And that's when it kind of stuck for me was when I really started loving these podcasts and I realized that Twitter spaces was just a much upgraded, accessible version um, of the everyday podcast, kind of bringing it right to people where they could just tune in at the tap of a button. So that's that's kind of what did it for me. Yeah, that and you can interact with the host too, right? I mean, like in the podcast form, you can just, you know, kind of listen. You're just like a fly on the wall, so to speak. And if, you know, you ever want to butt in, you can, uh, you know, now just request the mic and kind of get up, which is awesome. But, you know, you've been very generous with your time. So I appreciate you stopping in and uh, coming for a, a podcast with me. So for those who don't know you, why don't you tell them, um, you know, where they can find you and what you got going on? Yeah, the best place is right on X or Twitter at Wolf underscore financial. That's the number one spot. If you go there and you need any of my other socials, they're all linked through my bio. You can find the YouTube, the newsletter, the spaces schedule. It's all linked through the bio right on Twitter at wolf underscore financial. Awesome stuff, man. Wolf, thanks so much. Thank you.